We continue our series from the Westminster Confession of Faith. We're now up to number 20, so we're going through them. And this morning's one looks at the whole issue of Christian freedom and freedom of the conscience. Now, the big question we need to ask ourselves is, does the government determine morality? If a new law is passed, does that suddenly mean that we now have a new morality based on that law? Can we as Christians say we disagree with what the government is saying and uh, hold to our own Christian values? And this was quite a significant issue in the time when the Westminster Confession was preached, as much as it is an issue that we face today. So the issue is here, Christian freedom and the freedom of conscience. And it starts with uh, telling us a couple of things that uh, we have been uh, forgiven of. It says that through Christ... We have freedom from the guilt of sin. We have the freedom from the condemning wrath of God and the curse of the moral law. And where does this idea come from? In Titus 2.14 it says that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. Then in 1 Corinthians 1.10, Jesus delivers us from the wrath that is to come. And Galatians 3.13 says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. So you and I are now no longer under lawlessness, no longer under wrath, and no longer under curse. So we were once lawless, we were once under wrath, we were once cursed, but now, according to Romans chapter 1, verse 8, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we as Christians are not condemned. God doesn't uh, say, look, I'll let you just in the heaven. I've written your name in the book of life in pencil. Maybe it gets written in pen later, later date. It's not like that. God forgives us, changes us, transforms us and forgives us. The next part of the Westminster Confession looks at seven things about the, the dark world that we live in that is no longer true for us. The first thing it says is that you and I have been freed from the evil world we live in. We're freed from the enslavement of Satan, from the dominion of sin, from the evil afflictions, the sting of death, the victory of the grave, and from everlasting damnation. So where did the, the writers get this idea from? If you turn to Colossians chapter, three, uh, Colossians chapter 1 verse 13, it says that Jesus has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. I had a, a great privilege that one of the ladies in our church had a child who was deaf and uh, had surgery. And uh, after the surgery, they took this child to a, a darkened room and they very quietly put music on. Child was eight had never heard even a whisper in its life. And it suddenly says, I can hear. Could you imagine the joy you'd have as a mum or a dad? That your child can hear. What are your first words? I love you. Everything has changed. How much more so for you and I as Christians? Once we were in darkness, now in life. Once we were deaf and now we can hear and we're in a relationship with God. 
When Paul wrote Romans 6 verse 14, he said, For sin does not have dominion over you. Since you are no longer under law, but under grace. We were lost and now we are found. We were in wrath and now in forgiveness. We were living under law and now under grace. We were once in darkness and deaf and blind. And now we live in the light we can see and can hear. It goes on in the confession to say that in Christ, believers now have free access to God. We can speak to God and he listens to us and communes with us. So when Paul wrote Romans 5, 1 and 2, he says, We are justified or we are put right by faith. Not our faithfulness, but God's faith. That we now have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Through Jesus we have obtained access by faith into this grace. God has opened the door and said, Come on in, come and sit with me and be part of me. So as Hebrews 10 verse 19 says, We now have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Christ. And we can now obey him, not out of slavish fear, but out of a childlike love and a willing mind. One of my favourite chapters is Romans 8 and verse 14 says, For we have all been led by the Spirit of the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons who can now cry, Abba, Father. The intimacy of a child who runs into the arms of a willing parent. Now at times our head and our heart can make us captive to our sins. And we quite often are the worst judge of ourselves. We are our chief executioner and our chief judge is ourselves, and we regularly will criticise ourselves. But as Christians, we now can enter to the throne of God's grace and his mercy. In Hebrews 4.16, Let us therefore with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our times of need. Now, if you were Jewish and you were living in the time of Jesus, you were caught up in this endless cycle of sacrifices, you're caught up in religious festivals. You're caught up in temple worship and going to the synagogue. And day after day that you knew that all the money you'd spent on sacrifices did not work. They did not change who you are. But we're told in the Westminster Confession that we now have a fuller gift of God's Spirit and has no relationship to the Old Testament. Now in the Old Testament it was rare and very limited for anybody to receive the Holy Spirit. But now you and I as believers, on the moment we've come to salvation, the Spirit of God is poured into our life and is working within us. Uh, where do you think we could, should draw the line, however, when it comes to the freedom expression of, of our consciences? So the first part really deals, deals with the fact we are forgiven and we are saved. The next part of the confession says... Where do you stand with your area of your conscience? What is freedom? At what point does free expression become so harmful that the state ought to step in and curtail it? Now these questions are important to us today and they come up very often in the news. And they come up just as much when the Westminster Confession was being written. Why is that? Because in the centuries just before the Confession was written, England went from being a very Anglican country to being a very Catholic country. 
And every time a king changed and changed religion, the whole country changed with that king. And so suddenly you'd have massive and harsh persecution. Once you were the right religion, next year you're the wrong religion. And so there's massive difficulties. And so the whole issue comes up is Christian freedom and Christian liberty of conscience needed to be carefully defined. So in the first section we looked at, it showed that Christ has purchased you and I. We are free from sacrifice, the Jewish ritual, and from uh, sacramental worship in the temple. This section two moves into the whole line, what is the difference between civil and religion? And now in the Old Testament, Israel's laws were both religious and civil, and they were blurred together because uh, they were one country that, were, uh, that uh, had that type of mix. Now, what we know from Scripture says that God alone determines ultimately what is right and what is wrong. And the Christian lives and obeys accordingly. If a law is passed against God, we as Christians should choose to not obey a bad law. So how did the Westminster Confession people write it? They said, God alone is Lord of the conscience and has left it free from the doctrines of men which are contrary or different from his word in matters of faith or of worship. Now, in the book of Acts, we regularly see the massive contra- uh, conflict the early church faced between them as believers in Christ and uh, the Jews who were out of their way to try and attack and arrest the Christians. So what does the Apostle Peter tell us in Acts 5 verse 29? We must... Obey God rather than men. Now this verse was very crucial for the writers, as God is our master. Our master is not our bosses, not our government, not even our church authorities. But we as Christians need to come under God's word. So if there's a key conflict or issue, we need to say, what does scripture teach on this topic? So in terms of controversy, when Paul wrote Colossians 2, 20-23, says, if, Christ, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These, indeed, have the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion. And asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Whereas Paul says in Galatians 4 verse 9, For now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Whose slave uh, you want to be once more? Now, it's interesting in terms of denominations, both the Anglican Church and the Catholic Church have a very strong hierarchical uh, management structure. Now, we as Presbyterians, uh, our foundation is based on the elders of our church. So, uh, me as your pastor, I'm but one of many elders, and I'm not the boss of the church. Uh, it's not like I'm the power player that what I, when I say jump, you say how high. That, uh, and we don't have a head office who keeps on running us memos saying, this is what you should now believe. There's a strong sense that we as Christians say, our final authority is not the elders, 
not the management, not the administration, but Christ is the head of our church. And it's to the scriptures that we look for how we should therefore live. He goes on to say, requiring blind obedience also destroys freedom of conscience as well as the free use of reason. Our standard is not even church laws. Matter of fact, even the Westminster Confession of Faith says, if you think Scripture teaches something differently than what we said, go with Scripture. So make a, you know, go and seek out the words. So when we look at the early church, how did the early church react? How did they, they, they treat each other? Acts 17 has a great thing in verse 7. It says, They received the word of God with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily, to see if these things were so. So was the mark of the church. They went and looked at the Scriptures. Now initially, their Scriptures would have been just the Old Testament. Slowly, as the New Testament was written to people, they accepted those words as authoritative, and those words became the very standard of what they did. A friend of mine recently put up on Facebook that uh, he'd been researching sermons between the 2nd century to about the 16th century. And said the thing that really surprised him is they had very few stories, very few illustrations. They said most of the time when they preached, they'd say, this is what the scriptures teach. Let us look at the word of God together. And so their sermons were immersed completely with scripture references everywhere. He says that was the mark of the early church. He said he doesn't know what happened in about the 17th century, but a whole lot of people suddenly said, oh, let's get rid of Bible teaching. And we'll just tell interesting stories to people. And everyone will be smiled. We'll tell jokes. We had a very lovely man in our church who said that he loved coming to church because every time I preached, he had his Bible on his lap and he'd look up every reference and he'd be you know, going from page to page and he loved it. He said the church he used to belong to, he'd sit there, have his Bible on his lap. And he said the only time you ever hear a Bible reference was always out of context. And be lucky to get one or two references in a whole 30-minute sermon. So what should we be? People of God's Word. People who examine the Scriptures to go hungry and go reading it. And really, we should be reading it every day in our own life. Now, in the third section, it says, Our liberty as Christ is not an excuse for us to sin or to be immoral. So we don't say, Oh, I'm saved by grace. I don't care what I do with my life because God's going to forgive everything. So He's going to forgive all my future. So who cares what sins I do? That is not what Scripture says. So the confession says, those who practice any sin or nourish any sinful desire on the pretext of Christian freedom destroy the whole purpose of what Christian freedom is all about. Having been rescued out of the hands of our enemies, <clears throat> we might serve the Lord without fear and in holiness and righteousness before him. And so our freedom in Christ should also be marked by our obedience to Christ. So Galatians 4.13, you were called to freedom. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. No, we're not under law. We're not under rules. We're not under legalism. But we are under the mark and the measure of love. And two loves. Love God, heart, soul and mind. Love your neighbour as you love yourself. In 1 Peter 2.16, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants to God. And Jesus gives this very uh, serious warning in John 8, 34. 
Everyone who practices sin is now a slave to sin. Liberty should lead to holiness. Liberty should never lead to immorality. One of the saddest things is uh, if you do some research on smoking, uh, they say that if you buy a packet of cigarettes, by the time you have smoked that first packet, you are already addicted. And you talk to the smokers, they'll say things like, oh, look, I, I spend hundreds of dollars a week on this stupid weed. This is a smelly habit. I wish I didn't do it. And why do they do it? Because it is so addictive. How is smoking different from sin? Sin is addictive. Being immoral is addictive. Doing the wrong thing is addictive. Our freedom is found when we don't do those things. I have a clean tongue. I can taste food. I know exactly what it tastes like. How many smokers can say that? Their smoking has brought slavery. Me not smoking has given me freedom. Freedom, faithfulness, godliness are all big mixed in together. Now in the fourth section it says the true measure of government does, is how does it protect the poor and how does the government protect the powerless? Now when it comes to the government, there's a couple of things we need to realise. First, we must recognise that God appoints civil authorities and we must pray for our government and obey their commands when they do not contradict the word of God. Secondly, we must not obey the civil authorities when they ask us to do things that are evil. So our passage today from Daniel, when they were told to worship the, uh, the statue, he and others said, no, we cannot do that. We will be the best citizens you ever had. We will be faithful to you in all things, except we will not worship statues. Thirdly, we must publicly contend that we are subject to God's authority. Civil authorities must not make laws that disregard freedom of our conscience or prevent people from living according to their conscience. And that's one of the things that we're finding today. The government is wanting to legislate against us for some of our beliefs. So uh, the governments at times will say, oh, we'll remove your, your tax status or we will not give you charitable donations unless you do things exactly our way. Now, it's interesting. Uh, many people are quite excited about the school chaplaincy program that is sponsored by the government. But if you read the small print, there's a number of things that those chaplains are told that they cannot do. Now, one of them is the, the word proselytise. Now, the problem with the word like proselytise is that uh, 10 people, 10 different definitions, which is the right definition. For some people, they say, oh, you can't tell people about Jesus, or you can't evangelise, or you can't explain to somebody how to come to Christ, or you can't tell people about your church. And so each person has a different standard. So it means that uh, for me as a Christian, the most important thing I can give to somebody is the knowledge of Christ. And the government may say to me, we want you to be a Christian, but don't talk about Jesus. So the very thing that gives me purpose and essence of who I am is the very thing that is stopped from the conversation. So when the Westminster was wrote, they said, God intends that the authorities he has ordained on earth and the freedom of Christ has purchased should not destroy, but mutually uphold and preserve each other. And so those who oppose any lawful power or any lawful exercise of power, whether civil or ecclesiastical, as in church, 
on the pretext of Christian freedom, are actually resisting God. So there's a number of scriptures. If you go home and read Romans 13 for the whole chapter, it goes through it extensively. And then in 1 Peter 2.13, we are subject, for God's sake, to every human institution, whether it's the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who are doing good. And when Peter is writing, the emperor of the Roman Empire was not a Christian. The whole government structure of the Roman Empire was not Christian. But it said, if there's a government, you need to obey it unless it tells you to go against Christ. Because it said, the support, promotion or practice of such opposition which contradicts natural understanding the known principles of Christianity on matters of faith, worship and associations, which denies the power of godliness, or which disrupts the peace and unity among believers, should lawfully be called to account and proceeded against by the church. So how do we measure... A godless society. In the beginning of Romans, Romans 1, it goes through what impact sin does. And the final part of that is in Romans 1.32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do those things, but they give approval to those who practice it. Does our government at times empower immorality? There's times our government support false teaching. And what should we do as Christians when we face this issue within the church? 2 Thessalonians 3. If anyone does not obey, and it's all about Christians here, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person, have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. In other words, we are to separate ourselves from those who are false teachers and false brethren. Now, currently, you, uh, if you read the, uh, the paper this week, the Anglican Church is facing a massive split over same-sex blessings. So it's not saying that you can marry gay people in an Anglican Church. It's saying that after they are married in a civil service, that you'll give a blessing to that event. Now, it, for me, if the Presbyterian Church was going to split, I'm happy for it to split on one thing and one thing only. Is Jesus the Lord of your life? That is what we should split churches over, not on something uh, on the edge. Is same-sex relationships an issue? Yes, it is an issue. Is it the most important issue? No, it's not. If I ever talk to a gay person, I do it regularly. For me, the most important thing to bring to the table is not sex, but Jesus as Lord. If I meet a gay person, my question to them is, where do you stand with God? Their sexual practices is not my highest priority. And that is not what I break a church over. And as Presbyterians, our main thing is make sure you've got Christ right where you stand in your life. And getting right with God outweighs absolutely everything else. And the split of church over an edgy doctrine is not going to be godly to God. Now, it's interesting, sadly, within the Anglican Church, and especially on the Central Coast where Jim and I one day will retire, a lot of the ministers up there do not believe that Jesus is Lord, do not believe the Bible is Scripture, do not believe that Jesus died on the cross to forgive our sins, do not believe Jesus is the Son of God, do not believe the Holy Spirit is a person of God, and many of them even deny that God exists. And you're kind of thinking, why are you a minister in the first place? What are you doing in the church? You know, go and join the Rotary Club or something. 
Hi, 1 Timothy 6 says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teachings that accord with godliness, that person is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions and constant friction among people who are deprived in mind and deprived of the truth. Imagine that godliness is a means of gain. I uh, had a great chat with a a man yesterday and he said that he really struggles with where a lot of um, uh, charities are going, that he had literally tens of thousands of dollars worth of stuff that he wanted to give away and uh, he gave me about eight thousand dollars worth of his stuff yesterday which i was very very appreciative of and uh, i was just talking about how i used to run a charity and um, we'd give free things away and uh, i gave the illustration that um, the navy rang me up and said look i've got uh, two thousand mattresses they're nearly brand new you're happy we're happy for you to have the whole two thousand mattresses on one condition you don't ever sell one mattress to anybody that you give them away freely as we've given to you freely. And I thought, fantastic, I'll take the lot. I uh, put it through my network. I've got all these free mattresses. And at the time, I was working at Mount Druitt. And uh, as you know, I've got a large trailer. I can fit about 30 mattresses packed high on my trailer. And what would happen is I'd go to work and uh, get home from work about 6 o'clock, I uh, didn't know had a house we were renovating, so I had lots of spare rooms. I could fit 300 mattresses at a time in our house. And I'd go and load up my trailer, I'd drive out to predetermined places in Mount Druid and give out all the mattresses for free. We had a ball doing that. We gave out about 1,500 mattresses to people in Mount Druid. So I uh, loved doing what we did. Never charged a cent. And why was this guy lamenting? He said that he had seen that modern charities, that the people who work at them are more concerned about their wages and money than charity. He said, there's some things I wanted to give to one of the charities. They said, oh, we'll just sell everything and that will give us money and that money will give us wages. And he's thinking, I'm not donating to give you wages. I want to go donate to the poor. And that's the same thing happening here. Those who belong to the church who give up Christ, they're there for all the false reasons. They like the status. They like the power. They like being able to talk about their hobby horses. And they like regularly to try and discourage true believers. Now, as we go through the Westminster Confession, one of the most key important parts of the Confession has been that Christ and Christ alone saves us. Week after week, as we've been going through it, it's really that we need to come to grips with, are we right with God? Have we asked God through Jesus to be the Lord of our life? So in Titus 1 verse 10, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, in other words, those who are very legalistic. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by trying and teaching for shameful gain what they ought not teach. Or Titus 3.10 As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once, then twice, have nothing to do with that person anymore. Now it is easy for a church to change from scripture as its focus to a number of noble causes. There's a whole lot of things. I give sermons, I give talks on refugees, on the poor, on mental health, a range of topics I could do every week here in church that would be interesting. 
but Christ and Christ alone should be the centre of our life. True freedom for a train is found when the train is on the railway tracks. True freedom for a Christian is when you and I are living in submission and obedience to Christ. Don't become a slave to your sin. Find the liberty in faithfulness to Christ. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, it's through Christ and Christ alone that we do have salvation. We thank you, Lord, for the Westminster Confession that, that reminds us that we do have a conscience, that we do have liberty of thought, but true liberty is found when we are Christ-like in our behaviour. Father, may we always be passionate for your, you and your word, and may we be willing to speak clearly to those who do not know you about our living faith. Amen.